Hello and welcome to Atari Bytes, the show where we take a bite out of the story within a classic Atari 2600 game and see if that story bites us back. My name is Bill, this is episode 51. Thanks for listening. As this episode goes out, we are exactly one week into the year 2017. And if you're hearing this, I take that to mean that the world has not become a smoldering wreckage of former humanity. Or, the alternative is, my voice is going out to no one through the now self-sustaining, presumably fully sentient internet, which is now in control of the planet. So, there's that, I guess. Anyway, how you been, guys? I hope your holidays were everything that you wanted them to be. I hope that you are gently easing into the new year and girding your loins, as it were, for the year to come. In news this week... I didn't get a chance to mention this the last episode, but of course, uh, we retro gaming type people, those of us interested in pop culture from our youth, meaning largely the 70s and 80s, um, are probably still reeling a bit from the loss of Carrie Fisher, uh, of course followed quickly on the heels tragically by the death of her mother, Debbie Reynolds. 2016 was a difficult year for celebrity deaths, people dying of Whoever they are, celebrity or not, is not a pleasant thing, but it obviously feels different when someone who represents a part of your life, your imagination, your youth, uh, be they an athlete or an actor or writer, it's, uh, it, it's, hard to, it's hard to take sometimes. So hopefully everyone's doing all right with that. I recently rewatched Force Awakens. I'll probably watch the other Star Wars movies before too long may have already done that by the time you hear this episode. It just seems like, you know, even if it's a, a pop culture item you haven't thought about for a long time, when you hear that someone has died, immediately, of course, what you want to do is go find that pop culture item and experience it again. So I guess that's what I've been doing. I assume a lot of you have done the same. In other news, those of you who follow Atari history, and presumably you're listening to this podcast because you do, know the infamous story of the short, unpleasant life of the E.T. Atari game, and you probably also know about how bizarrely a ton, I don't remember the exact number, but a lot of E.T. cartridges were buried in a landfill in Arizona. Well, interestingly, the Alamogordo Public Library just used a bunch of money, $107,930 worth of money, to be exact, from selling those games on eBay, and they're taking that money to build an outside event pavilion in Alamogordo. Actually, hold on, let me back up a second. I think I said Alamogordo, Arizona. It's actually Alamogordo, New Mexico. My bad. In September 2015, Atari operational consultant Joe Lewandowski said of the $107,930 raised by Atari sales, uh, actually only $65,000, which is still a lot of money, went to the city of Alamogordo, and $16,000 went to the Tularosa Basin Historical Society. 20000 of that dedicated to the Alamogordo Public Library. The Alamogordo Police Department and the Alameda Park Zoo were also allocated portions of the Atari funds. Another 4000 was brought to the pavilion project by friends of the library. And it, it's a pavilion that will be built on the footprint of the existing concrete pad on the south side of the library. In a series of eBay auctions, the town of Alamogordo, New Mexico, sold 881 of the 1980s Atari video game cartridges buried for decades in the desert in New Mexico. 
for $107,930.15. A film crew and a dig crew were hired by Fuel Entertainment and Xbox Entertainment Studios in April of 2015 and dug up an old garbage dump outside of Alamogordo looking for Atari cartridges dumped in 1983. The dumping was precipitated by the North American video game crash of 1983 and the total bomb of a game that was E.T. the Extraterrestrial, written on a rush schedule and quickly gained a reputation among Atari players for being too punishing and complex. When Atari shut down its El Paso, Texas factory that year, the company had a variety of game cartridges, not just E.T., thrown out. Atari itself never confirmed or denied that the dump of tens of hundreds of thousands of game chargers existed, so of course rumors grew with doubters and believers on both sides until the Atari ET dump became the stuff of urban legend. Joe Lewandowski, a garbage contractor in the Alamogordo area, remembered pieces of the event, and decades later he used some careful detective work to pinpoint just where in the vast desert the cartridges were buried. A sample was of the cartridges were exhumed and used in the Xbox documentary. In September, the city of Alamogordo decided to sell hundreds of those cartridges on eBay, and they included Pac-Man, Miss Pac-Man, Pele Soccer, Yars Revenge, Baseball, Centipede, and Warlords. And then the proceeds, as I said, are going to be divided, uh, like I said before. The most expensive sale was of an ET cartridge that went for $1,535. Listen up. I have an ET cartridge. If anybody out there wants to give me $1,535 for it, I pretty sure I would let it go for that. I might even let it go for half of that. Besides the cartridges that the city of Alamogordo took charge of, the filmmakers were able to keep 100 cartridges, and 23 of those were given away to museums. Lewandowski says he's still holding on to 297 ET cartridges. Quote, I might sell those if a second movie comes out, but for now we're just holding them. He said, adding that a reboot of ET the film could increase the value of the games for the city. And no kidding, at the rate Hollywood is going, it's not a crazy bet to make. That's the article I'm reading. That's not me. Although, they're not wrong. So there you go. If anyone bought one of these auctioned, you know, eBay auction Atari cartridges from New Mexico, let me know. And if you're willing to tell me, let me know what you paid for it and why. Because I just, I find this very interesting. I also realized I don't think I've ever seen that Xbox documentary. I remember reading articles about the exhuming all the cartridges, but I don't remember ever watching that documentary. I'm going to have to check that out. Again, if anyone has seen the documentary, let me know. Atari Game Over is the name of the documentary, and as I'm thinking about it, it's on my Netflix list. Uh, I just haven't gotten around to watching it. All right, so that's it for news for me this week. Why don't we get into this week's game? This week's game is... Dun-da-dun-da! Dun-da-da! Adventure has only one name. And it's not Indiana Jones, so forget the music that I just pretended to play. Adventure has one name, and it's the Adventure. That's right, we're playing the 1980 Atari game Adventure, which, after playing a little bit, I think rightly has an excellent reputation. Some of you other podcasters out there who have your own shows and also listen to my show, first of all, thank you for that. Secondly, I know that this is a, a popular one among you folks, and I was excited to finally get to play it, because I totally understand why. This is another one that, even though it's a pretty good game and pretty popular, uh, it completely went by me as a kid, so I was happy to get to it now. For those of you who don't know, here's how you play. Um, We're using the joystick for this one. How to play. An evil magician has stolen the enchanted chalice and has hidden it somewhere in the kingdom. The object of the game is to rescue the enchanted chalice, 
and place it inside the golden castle where it belongs. This is no easy task, as the evil magician has created three dragons to hinder you in your quest for the golden chalice. There is Yorgi, the yellow dragon, who is just plain mean. There is Grundle, the green dragon, who is mean and ferocious. And there is Rindel, the red dragon, who is the most ferocious of all. Rindel is also the fastest dragon and is the most difficult to outmaneuver. There are three castles in the kingdom. The white castle, the black castle, and the golden castle. Okay, hold on here. All this color stuff is already confusing me. So which one is the white one, and what's the green one, and who's the yellow one, and, you know, partridge in a pear tree? I'm very confused. Each castle has a gate over the entrance. The gate can be opened with the corresponding colored key. Well, at least the colors are corresponding. If I was designing a game, I'd be a jerk about it, and I'd make it like, you have to have the yellow key to open the black gate, and the red key to open the blue gate, and stuff like that, because I'm kind of a jerk. The gate can be opened with the corresponding color key, I said that already. Inside each castle are rooms, or dungeons, depending on which skill level you are applying. The castles are separated by rooms, pathways, and labyrinths. Common to all the skill levels is the blue labyrinth, through which you must find your way to the black castle. Skill levels 2 and 3 have a more complicated kingdom. Using the controller, you can move in any of 8 directions with the joystick in that direction. Each area shown on your television screen will have one or more barriers or walls through which you cannot pass. There are one or more openings. To move from one area to an adjacent area, move off the television screen through one of the openings to the adjacent area. The adjacent area will be shown on your television screen. Scattered throughout the kingdom are certain objects to help you in your search for the enchanted chalice. To pick up an object, all that is necessary is to touch it. You will hear a sound that will notify you that you have the object in tow. To drop the object, press the red controller button. You will hear a different sound that will tell you that the object has been released. To open any castle, touch the gate with that castle's corresponding colored key. If the gate will slide open, you can enter the castle by moving upward through the gate. If you are leaving the castle, it is advisable to push the key out first, or you may inadvertently close the castle gate behind you. The little bit that I played around this with this, I didn't really notice that. Maybe I was pushing the key out without realizing it, but I guess I'm not sure what happens, though, if you close the gate behind yourself. You get locked in. Is that the end of the game? I don't know. Choose the skill level you wish to play by depressing the game select switch. To begin play, depress the game reset switch. If you get eaten by one of the dragons, do not despair. Just depress the game reset switch and you will be reincarnated and placed back in front of the golden castle. Unfortunately, any dragons you may have slain will also be reincarnated. If you are carrying any objects with you, it will remain where it was. If you have finished one game and wish to begin another, depress the game reset or the game select switch. The number of the skill level at which you are playing will appear on the television screen. To press the game reset switch and begin play. When the left difficulty switch is in the B position, the dragons will hesitate before they bite you. Therefore, when the left difficulty switch is in the A position, it is more difficult to escape them. While the evil magician has created many hazards to slow you in your quest to rescue the enchanted chalice, there is some good magic on your side. You have a sword that you can use to slay the dragons. To do this, you must touch him with it. If the right difficulty switch is in the A position, all dragons will run from the sword. There is a bridge that can be used to pass over the walls of any portion of the kingdom. The bridge cannot be used to pass through any barrier into the next portion, nor can it be used to move from right to left or left to right over a barrier or wall. It also cannot be used to get past a locked castle gate. Pick up the bridge the same way you would any other object. Place the bridge across the wall that you wish to pass over and release it by pushing the red controller button. So it's not so much a bridge as a ladder, I guess. The ends of the bridge must be visible on both sides of the wall for it to work. After releasing the bridge, you can then pass through it it to the other side of the wall or barrier. 
If you should happen to touch the inside of the bridge while you are passing over the barrier, the bridge will close and you may become trapped as well. I'm not sure I totally understand that. To release yourself, press the red controller button. If for some reason your magic should fail and you still cannot release yourself, press game reset and reincarnate. Use reincarnation as a last resort, especially if you've slain one or more dragons. In all games, Yorgi the Yellow Dragon is afraid of the gold key and will run from it. He will also stay away from whatever room or area in the kingdom in which it may be. To remove objects that are stuck in a wall and out of reach, there is a magnet that affects all inanimate objects, including the bridge. The magnet can also be used to move objects in an adjacent part of the kingdom by putting it in front of you before entering that part of the kingdom. Bad magic. The evil magician has cast a spell to make it difficult for you to succeed in rescuing the enchanted chalice. Not only do dragons rally around and try to stop you from getting the enchanted chalice, they guard other objects in the kingdom. Grundle, the green dragon, guards the magnet, the bridge, and the black key. Rindle, the red dragon, guards the white key. When not guarding the enchanted chalice, Yorkie, the red drag excuse me, the yellow dragon, roams freely about the kingdom. Sometimes he will assist Grundle or Grundle or Rindle in guarding whatever it may be that they are guarding. There is other bad magic that you must overcome in order to rescue the enchanted chalice. You cannot pick up and carry a slain dragon. In skill level two and three, besides the dragons, the evil magician has created a black bat that carries objects around throughout the kingdom and trades them for an object that you may be carrying. I'm Batman. The black bat may trade a live dragon for the sword and leave you defenseless, or it may trade you something for the enchanted chalice just as you are ready to put it into the golden castle. So the bat, kind of a jerk. Some magic can be good or bad depending on the situation. You can catch the black bat and carry it and whatever the black bat may be carrying. However, sometimes the black bat will escape, usually at the most inopportune times. Again, jerk! If there are four or more objects, including the castle gates, in your area of the kingdom, your magic may or may not work. Sometimes you can slay a dragon, sometimes you can't. However, it is easier to avoid being swallowed by a dragon. The swallowing part, really kind of creepy, because literally the dragon eats your little square cursor thing that represents you on the screen, and you can see yourself in the dragon's tummy. It's kind of creepy. Especially since, I think I mentioned in the field report, the dragons really look more like Bid Bird than dragons. And the concept of Bid Bird eating you, you know, devouring you alive, is really kind of creepy. If you have slain a dragon and he is blocking your path so you cannot get through, you can use this to your advantage by placing one or two objects in the same area and then move through the slain dragon. Again, I'm not sure I understand that. Sometimes the black bat can be used to your advantage by getting it to to swap for an object you need that may be stuck in a wall. Level 1. This is the simplest skill level. When you depress the game reset switch to begin play, you will see the key to the golden castle. Unlock the castle and enter. You will find the sword inside the golden castle. The key to the black castle is being guarded by Grundle, the green dragon. Yorgi, the yellow dragon, is roaming free and may or may not be found guarding the enchanted chalice, which is hidden with the magnet inside the black castle. In the field report, that's the part, that's as far as I've gotten when the field report starts. Gotten to the chalice, the magnets there, yellow dragons, being a jerk. Um, that's where I'm at uh, when I start the field report. Level 2. This kingdom is much larger than level 1. There are catacombs in which you can see only part way. The key to the golden castle is hidden here. You must pass through the catacombs to reach the white castle. The key to the white castle is hidden in the blue labyrinth. Inside the white castle is the red dungeon. There is a secret room in the Red Dungeon where the key to the Black Castle is hidden. To get to the secret room, you must use the bridge. To get to the Black Castle, you must pass through the Blue Labyrinth. I have a headache now. 
Behind the first room of the Black Castle is the Grey Dungeon, which is similar to the Catacombs. The Enchanted Chalice is hidden here, guarded by Rindle, the Red Dragon. All objects, the dragons, and the black bat will start in the same place in the kingdom each time you play the game at level 2. Level 3. The kingdom is the same as level 2, but is more difficult to play as the evil magician has placed all the objects and the dragons randomly within the kingdom. Oh, that evil magician. You will never know for sure what it is, what is in the next area of the kingdom until you enter it, nor will you know for sure where the enchanted chalice may be hidden. The dragons could be inside any of the castles. Yikes. That's adventure, folks. When this game came out, it introduced a number of innovative game elements to console games, including a playing area that spanned several different screens and enemies, and continued to move even when not displayed on the screen. It was conceived originally as a graphic version of the 1977 text adventure, Colossal Cave Adventure, which I don't know anything about. If any of you have played Colossal Cave Adventure, let me know what it is, and whether, it really, whether you can see that it is a predecessor to this game, and what you think of it. Adventure was developed by Warren Robinette, and it took him about a year to do it, to design it, to code it, and during that time he had to overcome a variety of technical limitations in the Atari 2600 console hardware. I don't know anything about game design or programming an Atari or any other computer for that matter. I took a basic Apple computer code writing class in high school. That's the extent of my, and that was a very, very long time ago. So that's the extent of my programming knowledge. But even I can tell from what, looking at this game that they had to have scratched their heads and occasionally beat their heads against the wall to come up with the technical specs for this game because it is unlike any other, well, I shouldn't say any other, but any other Atari game that I know of for that era in terms of its complexity. Robinette, in addition to the technical problems, he also had problems with management at Atari. Uh, in this game, he introduced the first widely known video game, Easter Egg, a secret room containing text crediting himself for the game's creation. His Easter Egg became a tradition for future Atari 2600 titles. Adventure received mostly positive reviews at the time it was released, and has continued to be viewed positively in the decades since, often named as one of the industry's influential titles. It is considered the first action-adventure and console fantasy game, and inspired other titles in the genres. More than a million cartridges of Adventure were sold, and the game has been included in numerous Atari 2600 game collections for modern computer hardware. The game's prototype code was used as the basis for the 1979 Superman game. I guess I can see that, now that I think about it. And a planned sequel eventually formed the basis for the Sword Quest games, which I guess I can also see. The Easter egg concept pioneered by the game has transcended video games and entered popular culture. Well, sure. Everything has an Easter egg now. Games, uh, DVDs, uh, everything. There's always hidden stuff. Adventure was published by Atari, programmed by Warren Robinette, as I said. At that time, Atari programmers were generally given full control and the creative direction and development cycle for the games. But this required them to plan for their next game as they neared completion of the current one to stay productive. Robinette was working on slot racers when he got a chance to go to the Stanford Artificial Intelligence Laboratory where he was introduced to Colossal Cave Adventure, created by Will Crowther and modified by Don Woods. So Robinette played Colossal Cave Adventure for several hours and got inspired to create a graphical version of that game, which was Adventure. He started working on the game on a Hewlett-Packard 1611A microprocessor computer in May or June of 78. He knew that the memory issue was going to be critical. Atari 2600 cartridges had room for only 
4096 bytes, 4 kilobytes on the cartridge ROM, and 128 bytes for program variables in the 2600's RAM. In contrast, Colossal Cave Adventure took over hundreds of kilobytes of memory. The final game used nearly all of the available memory, including 5% of the cartridge storage for Robinet's Easter Egg, with 15 unused bytes from the ROM capacity. Robinet figured out how to use the limited memory efficiently, although he noted that because of the limitations built into all this, the dragons to him looked more like ducks. I think I noted earlier, they looked to me more like Bidbird. He found some workarounds for various limitations. The Atari 2600 system had has only one playfield and five memory mapped registers available to represent moving objects. Only two of those registers are capable of representing more complex sprites. Robinette figured out how to use the uh, register originally designated for the ball in James Hunter's Pong to represent the player's avatar. I guess that's why you just basically look like a little square. He used the registers assigned for missiles, such as bullets in combat, for additional walls in the playing field to be able to represent different rooms within the game of the same play field. There's more of these workarounds set out in the stuff that I'm reading. Uh, the point is that he was pretty ingenious with, instead of being hampered by the limitations of Atari at the time, he just figured out ways to make the game more creative, which is why I think the game works so well. Despite the limitations, Robinette was able to introduce concepts that at the time were unfamiliar to players. He'd been able to construct different rooms in the game, 30 in the final version, in days where most games took place only on a single screen. Further, off-screen objects, such as the bat, would continue to move according to their programming behavior. In addition to technical limitations, though, Robinette also struggled with Atari management. Robinette was initially discouraged from working on adventure by his supervisor, George Simcock, who said the ambitious game should not be done based on knowing how much memory Colossal Cave Adventure used. When Robinette developed a working prototype within a month, the management at Atari were impressed and encouraged him to continue the game despite his supervisor's initial response. Management later tried to convince Robinette to make it a tie-in work for the upcoming Superman movie, but Robinette remained committed to his initial idea. Instead, Atari had developer John Dunn offered to take Robinette's prototype source code to make 79, the 79 Superman game. Robinette did a second prototype in 1978 with about eight rooms, a single dragon, and two objects. He worked with Steve Harding, the author for nearly all Atari 2600 game manuals at that point, to develop the plot for the game. Harding developed most of the plot after playing the game himself, while Robinette revised elements where he saw fit. Robinette submitted the source code for Adventure to Atari Management in June of 1979 and left Atari soon after that. The game was released sometime later, though the exact date is unclear. In a 2003 interview, Robinette recalled the release date as being Christmas 1979, though noted he had left the company by this point and was traveling in Europe at that time. A 1979 date is also listed in various other sources. Atari began advertising the game as coming soon in its 1980 catalog, and several sources indicate the game was released that year, after the Atari 2600 version of Space Invaders was released in early 1980. Adventure got mostly positive reviews in the years immediately after its release, and has generally been viewed positively in subsequent decades. It was included in the popular 2010 book, 1001 Video Games You Must Play Before You Die. Atari Adventures sold a million copies. A sequel was announced in early 1982, but eventually evolved into the Sword Quest series of games. In 2005, a sequel written by Kurt Vendel was released on, Atari, on the Atari Flashback 2. In 2007, Atari Age released a self-published sequel called Adventure 2 for the Atari 5200, which is heavily inspired by the original. Its name is used with permission from Atari Interactive. Robinette himself took the idea of using items from Adventure into his next game, Rocky's Boots, but added the ability to combine them to form new items. The adventure Easter Egg became a cornerstone of the hunt for the Easter Egg hidden in the fictional virtual reality game Oasis in the novel Ready Player One. 
I've read that book. It's good. If you haven't read it yet, you should. Because if you're into old pop culture and retro games and all that sort of thing, it's right in your wheelhouse. And I enjoyed it. I actually listened to it on audio, read by Will Wheaton. And, uh, and that was very entertaining. So check that out. Free plug for Ready Player One. And I guess Will Wheaton. Alright, so after the break, it's time to decide if this is a true adventure or a mundane trip to the grocery store. Sorry. The Enchanted Chalice Isle of Walmart. Well, let's see. I got a text from my wife. Sweetie, on your way home, could you swing by and pick up the Enchanted Chalice? <sighs> yeah, I guess so. How hard could it be? Hmm. Oh, hey, there it is. Wait, wait a minute, what's that? No! Not dragons! Alright, so, this is the rare field report where you're catching me mid-adventure, pun intended. Um, at this point, I have been messing around with the game tonight. I have found the chalice already, but the stupid yellow dragon keeps eating me. Uh, I just restarted. I'm back at the yellow castle. And here we go again. Walk, walk, walk. Walk, 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 walk. The graphics, of course, in this game are pretty simple. They remind me a little bit of Haunted House in the sense that each room is only a particular kind of room, primarily because that's what you're told it is, not because you would recognize it off the bat. Although, uh, this game does a little better job of representing, like, the dragon or the gate to the castle, or a key, those things tend to look a little bit more like what they actually are than maybe Haunted House did. Uh, now I'm stuck in the stupid labyrinth. I've done this, I don't know, 700 times, but I still get lost in this labyrinth. Let's see, how did I do that before? There's the yellow dragon, there's the chalice. How did I get over there before? Uh, let's see. Run back this way. I kind of wish there was a little bit of adventure music because the game is pretty quiet. Let's see. Going back down this way. Oh, leave me alone. Yes, I got the chalice. No. Oh, Big Bird just ate me. Because really, that dragon does look a little bit more Big Bird like than dragon-like. Somehow I'm not comforted, though. Uh, alright. Back to you in the studio while I wait to be pooped out of Bitbird. Okay, so playing adventure makes me wonder, I guess, a lot of things. One thing that comes to mind right away is, is this the game that Raiders of the Lost Ark wanted to be? Raiders, of course, is a multi-screen adventure where you have to pick up objects and your ultimate goal is to find, not the Enchanted Chalice, but to find the Ark of the Covenant. There are obstacles in your path, of course. Snakes that want to eat you. Teetsy flies. That weird room with the spider. You know, all that stuff. But in a lot of ways, Adventure beats Raiders of the Lost Ark. For one thing, it's less complicated. When you die, you start the game again, but you don't lose all your stuff. You start back at the beginning, but all your stuff is where you left it. And it's just a lot clearer what you need to do. 
I guess another way to put that is that it's a lot simpler game, maybe, but it's, I almost want to say it's more fun in the sense that it's clearer, because it is clearer what you need to do. As I play the game, I'm also reminded, because I'm a Doctor Who nerd, the Season 9 episode, Heaven Sent. In the game, you're repeating the same steps over and over again. You go through the motions, you die, you start over, you go through the same motions again, you die, you start over, but each time you're still making incremental progress. If you moved the chalice before you died, when you come back, the chalice is where you moved it to. You still got to get it where it needs to go, but you don't have to start all over again. That Heaven Sent episode was like that too. The doctor is trapped, he's got to get out, he keeps dying over and over again, but each time he is getting a little bit further down the path, even though he has to relive everything over and over again. So, if any of you are Doctor Who nerds, uh, I guess you'll know what I'm talking about. If you're not, you should become one uh, and watch this episode as well as its follow-up, Hellbent. Um, You won't be disappointed. But Doctor Who is its own story. Uh, Just like adventure is its own story. And what exactly is that story, friends? That's what we like to talk about on this show. Um, There are, of course, five parts to a story, right? I don't think I've run through the five parts of a story for a while, so I will do that now. Uh, The introduction, of course, is the setup for the story. You find out who the characters are, what the setting is, maybe what the complication is. kind of get the basic facts from where you're starting. The rising action is where events are starting to happen, characters are starting to do things, the plot is moving, and you're headed towards the peak of the story where the conflict comes to a head. And that, of course, is the climax, the big showdown, the big reveal, the big plot turn. Then you have the falling action where you kind of pick up the pieces after this big conflict goes down. You find out what the ramifications of the climax are. You're starting to glide towards the resolution of the story, the denouement, the end of the story, whatever you want to call it. That's the fifth and final part. Everything gets wrapped up, hopefully, if it's a decent story, and you're left happy or sad or creeped out, whatever the intended ending was. So, is this simply an adventure story, or is there something more going on here? Is it not an adventure at all? Is it just some random, everyday event? Well, here's what I think of. Our story begins with Joe Lunchpail headed off to work, or in this case, Ralph the Red Dragon, punching in for his shift at the Castle Perimeter Security Office. Morning, Fred. He says as he sets his lunch pail full of raw goblin carcasses in his cubby. Morning, Ralph. Fred the Grey Dragon says sleepily as he punches out. Quiet night. Fred nods. Some Biloxi troll tried to breach. We rousted him. No big deal. Alright, so we've got Ralph, we've got Fred. They're guarding the castles. They're just a couple of regular dragon joes going to work. Now things are going to start happening. And get some rising action up in here. Fred goes home to his cave. Ralph settles in for a shift. He flips open the art section of the Dragon Gazette. It's about halfway through the review of this new book, The Dragon with the Girl Tattoo, when the monitor starts pinging. Google reminds him he has an appointment with the fire breathologist at 2 o'clock, but everything else on the system is quiet. After a while, though, the Sector 4 alarm chimes. Trolls again. Ralph fumes, a little wisp of annoyed smoke, seeping lazily from his right nostril. From the left nostril, nothing, hence the breathologist appointment. Ralph checks the monitor to see what the source of the trouble is. 
and it's not trolls. Alright, so we're about to have some conflict here. Perhaps this is the climax? I don't know. Well, actually, I do know, because it's right here in my notes, next to the all capital letters, climax. Nope, it's not trolls. It's something less hairy, but just as smelly. It's a human. Ralph's cappuccino spills, the little stream threatening to seep into the control panel, saved only by the trickle of flame from poor Ralph's wimpy single-barrel fire shooter. Is no one guarding the castle? The flame quickly evaporates, turns the cappuccino into so much mocha-flavored steam. Is no one guarding the castle? Ralph fumes, literally and figuratively. Suddenly, this obnoxious human is running through the corridors, finding, like, all the keys. Seriously, did the... Yellow, red, and green dragons just kind of toss the keys on a table with a big sign that says, Here, keys. Free to a good home. Ralph gets on the headset and starts barking orders. Finally, Yorgi, Grundle, and Rindle put down their Twitter accounts long enough to swoop in and do their frickin' jobs. The little human adventurer, though, is elusive. He's running from room to room. At first, Ralph hopes the adventurer maybe just wants some keychains from the gift shop or something. But it quickly becomes clear that she's after something more. Oh, no. She's going for the enchanted chalice. Damn it. Oh, crap. Who gave her a sword? Seriously. Why are they just leaving these things out? Wait. Don't let her get on the bridge. Why is Yorgi running away? The human is getting closer to the key. <sighs> Ralph is a middle-aged dragon and had been looking forward to getting out of the field. He was regretting that decision today, though. Here he was, stuck in the control booth. All right. So, our adventurer got the chalice. What are we going to do? Well, first thing we're going to do is have some falling action. The little human adventurer manages to slay the red dragon. The little human adventurer manages to slay the yellow dragon. Ralph has a fleeting thought that Yorgi was a bit of a jerk, but then he feels a little guilty speaking ill of the dead. Just a little guilty, though, because really, big jerk. The bats do slow the adventurer down, but not by much. Ralph had argued against putting so much of the security budget in flipping bats. But hey, what does he know? He's only been guarding castles since Smog was just a teenager who couldn't care less about gold and dwarves. You couldn't even spell Hobbit. The kids coming out of Dragon School today are morons. Bean counters with no practical experience. It's a shame. So, the adventurer goes on her merry way, and Ralph slowly, painfully watches the end crawl across his monitor screen. He scans the monitors, but his eyes become blurry. He needs to pee. How many hours has the siege of these castles been going on? Where's the adventurer now? Oh, God, she does have the chalice. Isn't any dragon going to stop her? She keeps dropping the damn thing. And then the green dragon eats her. And then she gets to go after it again. The time clock kerchunks, announcing the arrival of Fred for a shift. Evening, Ralph, Fred says. Any excitement today? Ralph collects his lunchbox, the goblin carcass uneaten and extra pungent, punches out and turns to Fred, saying, Oh, you know, there's an opening. For Yellow Dragon. I think I might apply. Night, Fred. Night, Ralph. And that's our show. My thanks to Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com for Creative Commons' use of his songs, Reformat, Pinball Spring, and Take a Chance. Show notes are available at ataribytes.libson.com. You can email the show at ataribytes2016 at gmail.com. Like the show on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at Atari Bytes. Or, if you like, follow me personally at Carnival of Glee. You can find Atari Bytes on iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, anywhere you want, because, obviously, the dragons aren't going to stop you. Please do leave a review on iTunes. 
The Dragons promised to leave the key. They've left it everywhere else. Also, you can support the show financially on our Patreon page, or by picking up cool Atari Bytes merchandise at Zazzle.com. And if you have the time, do please check out my other show. It's a podcast, Charlie Brown. New episodes drop on the 15th of every month. Next time on Atari Bytes. Meep meep. Roadrunner. So until next time, go play some old games. They've missed you. Thank you.